You're listening to Mysteries Still Unsolved, a podcast where we discuss unsolved mysteries both past and present. I'm your host, Rochelle. Today, we will be discussing Tsunami Spirits. Hello, hello, and welcome back. I hope that you all had an awesome, albeit somewhat unusual, COVID Thanksgiving. Ours um, was very relaxed. I outsourced a lot of the food um, just because I just didn't want to deal. I picked up a turkey breast from Honey Baked Ham, and then I got a few pies from a couple of different local businesses here in Utah. Um, We got our stuffing, gravy, and cranberry sauce from the Palace Trader Joe's, my fave. Love Trader Joe's. Can I get them to sponsor me? That would be like a dream come true. Have Trader Joe's sponsor me. And all I had to really make in the end was a sweet potato casserole, and Brian made mashed potatoes. So easy enough, right? I am all for the path of least resistance. (laughs) Why do more work when you can do it an easier way and smarter? (laughs) Oh my gosh, guys, we have an update. So mystery on the rooftop that I think that that's like episode three or four. Um, It's the death of Ray Rivera. And I'll just give you a really quick recap if you haven't listened to it. Um, Ray Rivera was a freelance writer. He went missing from his home after receiving a mysterious telephone call in 2006 in Baltimore, Maryland. He leaves in a rush and he isn't seen or heard from ever again. Um, Eight days later, Ray's body is discovered in an abandoned section of a hotel And above him, there's a hole in the ceiling that leads to the outside rooftop. Some of Ray's belongings are found on the rooftop above, but his injuries and position are inconsistent with a fall. While the case of Ray Rivera has not been solved yet, there have been some small updates. According to the showrunner for Unsolved Mysteries, Terry Dunn, Muir, investigative journalists are working on the case and new leads are coming up via the tip website unsolved.com. When speaking on Netflix's true crime podcast, you can't make this up. Muir also revealed a number of pieces of information that weren't included in the episode. Firstly, he clarifies that the Unsolved Mysteries team did manage to have a conversation with Porter Stansberry, which we talked about. Um, He says that I actually spoke to Porter Stansberry and asked him to interview for the episode. We had a long conversation in which he ended up declining to be interviewed. Um, when Allison Rivera's wife went to the police station to pick up Ray's computer, we've talked about this as also, um, the detective mentioned someone had called a couple of times and asked to pick up the computers and he, they kept calling and they were really interested in the status of computers and Allison was really troubled by that. The fact that an unknown third party was interested in trying to interfere with Ray's computer after his death could point to foul play. And finally, this is the news that is new, new, new. Muir suggests reason to believe that Ray was concerned about his safety in the weeks before his death. And I know that we talked about him being really worried when the alarm went off, but this is a different incident that was not 
um, included in his episode. So apparently there was an incident that happened about a week before Ray disappeared. Allison was training for a triathlon and she wanted to go to the local track and do some sprints. Normally she would just go by herself. Ray was working on a deadline for a really important project. However, this time he insisted on going with her. It was raining, so there were not a lot of people on the track, but there were these two guys that came onto the track, and when that happened, Ray came flying out of his car, and it seemed really um, unusual about how concerned he was. As of yet, nobody has come forward with any substantial evidence in this case. However, there's plenty of theories to be found on Reddit, especially about how can you forget that strange note. So if you've got a second or... I don't know, two hours, feel free to go down that rabbit hole. It's seriously such a mysterious one. Today, we will be discussing the next episode in volume two of Unsolved Mysteries. This is episode four titled Tsunami Spirits. On March 11th, so just nine years ago, um, I was about 20 years old and I wasn't really into watching the news, but I do recall hearing about it. Um, There was a massive tsunami that devastated the coast of the Tohoku region of northeastern Japan. This area of Japan is not like Tokyo or Hiroshima or Kyoto. Those are all very large metropolises. This area of Japan is extremely rural. It's basically country land. But while the Tohoku region is smaller than those others that we um, are more likely familiar with, this tsunami devastated the area and 20,000 people lost their lives. Many people are still unaccounted for. While we will certainly be talking about the tsunami itself and its absolutely devastating aftermath, this is not the sole focus of this episode. Because in the months that followed this natural disaster, hundreds of strange encounters were reported. And in true unsolved mystery fashion, these are encounters of the paranormal variety. This episode begins with a reverend of a local temple, a Buddhist temple, explaining that one night he saw a shadow of a man in his bedroom. He asked the man, who are you? The man responded, I'm at the bottom of the ocean. He then proceeds to ask, reverend, am I dead? The reverend replied, there was an earthquake and you were hit by a tsunami. Yes, you are dead. Ishunumaki? Ishinomaki, Japan, located in the Tohoku region, is where we will be spending our time throughout this episode. I'm going to butcher all these names. I can usually wing it if it's like a Latin-based language, but I'm just going to like say the name with confidence and it's probably wrong, but um, I'm just going to pretend like I know what I'm talking about here. <laughs> um, Teruo Kono is Ishinomaki City is an Ishinomaki City employee, and he tells us that Ishinomaki owes its wealth and success to a river that was turned into a port. Many people work on the ocean. Many make nori, which is a seaweed product. The ocean has always meant posterity to the people who live in Ishinomaki. Well, until the earthquake hit on March 11th. Ishinomaki was no stranger to earthquakes, but this one jolted the city completely. It was a magnitude 9. After a large earthquake, they knew the drill. A tsunami was coming. And considering the fact that in the last 100 years, they had never been hit with an earthquake of this magnitude, they knew it would be their biggest one yet. City officials told their residents to flee as quickly as humanly possible. And many people did. 
However, some, whether it be due to a lack of resources, financial, or perhaps some due to pride, they did not leave. They did everything they had been trained to do, the city employees, but there is no way that they could have ever been ready for the tsunami that was about to occur. Um, If you're watching the episode, it's at this point that we have a chance to view the footage of the tsunami and hear the sounds of the tsunami, and it is absolutely terrifying. Like, when you hear that strong wind and, like, the alarm blaring, it's so eerily creepy. The wave, when you see it, is ginormous. It looks unrelenting and unforgiving, and after it crashed upon the land, it kept growing larger as it went across the town. The wave was so powerful that it uprooted homes and took it and took those homes with it down the street. The sheer force of the impact of the wave killed many people. If that hadn't killed you, you would surely drown because it was impossible to know if you were up or down. The waves tossed and turned so that anybody that was in it was completely disoriented. People were hit with buses, cars, homes floating in the water. There is a scene of the flood going over um, like farm fields and there are multiple fires and explosions and buses and buildings in the wave itself and just keeps going and going. It's absolutely terrifying and unlike anything that I've ever seen before. It's interesting because you can picture, like when I say tsunami, you like picture something, but to actually see real footage and to hear the sounds was really, it just made it so real. Tao Kaneta, who is the reverend who shared his experience with us at the start of the episode, said that after all the people had gone through, Mother Mother Nature would not let up. Um, It actually began to snow pretty heavily after the tsunami happened. So not only were people homeless, harmed, searching for their loved ones and drenched, now they were freezing. He remembers thinking, why will the snow not stop drenching these survivors? How could nature be so cruel, so merciless to the people who are already suffering? The maximum height of the tsunami was 131 feet. There are almost 16,000 dead and 4,000 of those are still unaccounted for, and they very well may never be accounted for. On March 12th, the day after the tsunami, the world mourned with Japan and their lost loved ones. Taro Kono, the city employee that we spoke to earlier, said he learned that 54 of his employees had been killed by the tsunami. He could not believe it. He never wants to experience anything like that ever again. We then meet a man, a local farmer, Kazuya Sasaki, who says the day after he went searching for his family. His eldest daughter was found in a nearby bamboo forest in their backyard, and although she looked as if she was merely sleeping, she had not survived. His wife was found a three-minute drive away from his home, and she had not survived either. A week or two after the tsunami, while clearing out the debris of what was once his home, his youngest daughter was discovered. She was about 18 months old, and she had not survived either. I feel so sad for this poor man. He lost his entire family to the tsunami. 
Due to lack of fuel and electricity, the crematorium was not working, so they could not hold any funerals for their dead, which is traditional in Japan um, to cremate bodies. They don't bury bodies there. Just I'm, I'm guessing just because there are so many people that live there, they don't have the space. Um, so in this instance, they were forced to bury their dead, and then later they dug them up, and then they cremated their bodies and did like a proper burial. The reverend tells us that so many dead kept coming past him. There was just stretcher after stretcher after stretcher filled with body bags. He says it was unrelenting. The first two bodies that he saw, and he was supposed to perform um, like a like a simple service, he was shaking so much with sorrow that he wasn't even able to read the mantra. And even now, his eyes swell up with tears when he recounts the story. The reverend is a 26th generation monk. At a young age, he was sent to a school to be trained, but he says nothing could have trained or prepared him for something like this. Shuji Okono, a journalist, arrived in the city in June 2011 because he had heard rumors um, of ghost sightings in the area following the tsunami, and he wanted to come and see if there were any truth to the rumors. He said the sightings really began to pick up in October, so he began documenting people who had these supernatural experiences. One day, a man named Endo reached out to him about a supernatural experience that he had had. On the day of the earthquake, he visited a shelter to see if his mother was there. He was told to wait in the lobby for her, so he waited. While he was waiting, however, he saw an older woman looking out the window, and she was wearing his mother's clothes. As he looked closer, he realized, hey, this is my mom. He touched her on the shoulder and verified, yes, it was her. He took a picture of her so that he could send it to his family to let them know that he had found their mother and that she was safe. However, after taking the picture, the woman's face completely changed. It wasn't his mom after all. It was a stranger. He later learned that his mother had been on a bus and had been washed away by the tsunami at the precise moment that he was taking this picture of a woman that had resembled his mother. Another story is a woman who had lost her three-year-old son to the tsunami. Since then, she had suffered with depression and anxiety, as is expected. I feel like anybody would experience those things. It's totally normal and healthy to feel those way, that way after such a traumatic way to lose your son. Um, inside her home, she had kept a few of her son's toys in the living room just to help her feel closer to him. During dinner one night, she called out to her deceased son, let's eat together. At that very moment, her son's favorite toy train began to play music and it had a manual starter. So there's no way that it could have started on its own. Before that night, the mother looked forward to dying. She had even considered taking her own life. But this occurrence with the toy train reminded her that her son was still with her and was watching over her. It gave her life purpose again. Unlike families in America, Japanese people do not seek out grief counseling. Dr. Janabishi tells us that they are afraid that if they stop feeling the pain of their losses, that they will forget their loved ones. Japanese people do not separate the dead from the living. They believe in shoji, which is a thin veil that separates this life from the next. They believe that the dead can see you and you can see them. 
Many of us have lost loved ones without being able to say goodbye, and this oftentimes seems unfair. The reverend says that the dead feel the same way. One clear night, a woman was preparing a meal. She heard a knock on the door. She opened it and saw a woman who was drenched, and she asked her for dry clothing. The woman returned with some dry clothes. Then she shut the door and went back to cooking her dinner. However, a few moments later, she again heard a knock. This time, there were many drenched people. But this time, the woman noticed that the people were translucent. Kansho, another survivor, takes us to the location of where her house used to be, and even nine years later, there are no traces of what used to be. It is completely deserted and abandoned. After the earthquake, she wanted to go home, but there was no home to go to. She says lost souls have no place to go. They have no place to rest. There is no place familiar to them. So they must turn to random strangers on the street for help. She says that she has always been spiritual. Even from a young age, she would speak with ghosts. People often ask her, what do ghosts look like? She says they appear as a slightly transparent reflection through a glass window. One night, Concho was driving home when she was stopped by a group of boys. She immediately knew that they were victims of the tsunami, but they did not seem to know that they were dead. She stopped because she felt incredibly sorry for them. She asked them what had happened. They said they were lost. She decided to tell them the truth because she couldn't bear to have them suffer and wandering any longer. Dr. Janabishi specializes in the sociology of disaster, which is a really cool emphasis if you ask me. One time he had a student who wanted to research more about the ghost sightings. He helped his student in their quest. He said many of the stories came from taxi drivers who had picked up a passenger, and he loved these stories because they were easy to corroborate because of the way that the taxi and the meters operate. One man said in August, he picked up a passenger who was wearing a full-on winter coat, and it was hot, hot, hot. It's August. And he drove him, like, really far away into, like, a different town. In fact, by the time they got to their destination, the sun had already set. However, when he looked back, the passenger was gone. There were several taxi drivers who experienced extremely similar occurrences. Many taxi drivers had experienced their own losses of family members and loved ones to the tsunami, so they said they welcomed their ghost passengers with open arms and sometimes even paid for those rides out of their own pockets. Sometimes they would even get repeat rides um, with the same passenger. This disaster was very traumatic for the Japanese people. Dr. Janabishi believes that ghost sightings may be a way for the people to cope with their PTSD as a community, and he believes that this is what is happening here. However, he does say that if this is if this is an absolute truth, then how come there were no influx of ghost sightings after the Great Hanshin earthquake or the devastation that occurred in Hiroshima? Why was there only an influx of sightings after this particular event in this region of Japan? A journalist has a theory. He notes that this region in Japan is much more religious and spiritual compared to 
their big city counterparts. He believes that it might be possible that the people of this region are reporting these occurrences more often because they are looking for the encounters. I think that this theory certainly holds some merit. For example, I don't know if you knew this, but every year in Rome, half a million exorcisms are performed. And these are not all major exorcisms, like the ones that you're probably picturing in your mind right now, like the movie Exorcist. Um, Many are mild and pretty minute in nature. However, Rome accounts for more than half of the exorcisms performed annually worldwide each year. Does this mean that the devil lives in Rome and is terrorizing people or that the people in Rome are more um, disposed to getting an evil spirit? No, not at all. I would assume that with the with Rome being the epicenter of the Catholic Church, that people in Italy and Rome are more prone to thinking something requires an exorcism when it might not actually be required. I'm not saying that the Rome people, the Roman people are making it up, but when you have the devil and exorcisms on the mind, you can trick your mind into making things a bigger deal than they really are. For example, chronic panic attacks or migraines or hallucinations here in the US may lead us to think that we may need that we may need to get in contact with a doctor and perhaps even a mental health professional while people in Rome may immediately jump to the conclusion that they have been possessed by an evil spirit. Similarly, I can't ever say that word. Similarly, if we in the U.S. were to experience a chain of bad luck for like a year or two, we might assume, ah, looks like I've gotten myself into a slump. Um, But someone living in Rome may jump to the conclusion that they have been cursed or possessed, and they might, instead of seeking help from a doctor, they might go to a clergy instead. Um, I think that this is also evident if you've ever watched a scary movie by yourself, um, like you've stayed at your house millions of times by yourself, but then you watch a scary movie that night and all of a sudden you're hearing all of the creaks, all of the wind, all of the creepy sounds that your house makes. And then you like psych yourself up. So Dr. Jean de Bichy believes that this theory holds water. The Reverend believes that it's something much deeper than that. The relation, he says that the relationship between the living and the dead is something that has existed for a long time. He believes something was shaken loose during the earthquake and it all kind of came to a head and spewed out. Dr. Janabishi doesn't really believe in ghosts, but he does admit that he is not the type of person who would be prone to seeing them, in which case, no matter how undefined they may be, It's okay to leave ghosts just like that, undefined. We don't have to understand them. The Reverend knows that scientists get tired of hearing about ghost stories. He says that he knows that they rely on logic and statistics and data. He says most psychologists would say that these ghost sightings are nothing more but a manifestation of people's trauma and grief. But he says that their interpretation... um, is not, it's basically their interpretation and his own life experiences are, they're not in alignment. And so he's going to believe his own experience, which I think that we all do. Like, I don't know. For instance, if somebody tells you that they're suffering and you have never suffered the way that they're suffering, it might be easy to just kind of like be like, oh, well, no, you're not. Like, 
that's never happened to me, but that's your experience and that's their experience. You cannot compare them. Um, One night, a woman was brought to his temple who seemed to be extremely ill. He said the woman kept repeating, I feel many people inside of me and I can't stop them. Please help me, Reverend. During his long time as a priest, he had met many, many people, but he had never met anyone who suffered as much as she did. We now hear from Amy, who has chosen to withhold her identity um, by changing her name and being like blurred out. She says that she was in so much pain that she longed for death. She felt the pain of a young spirit girl, and that spirit was being held onto by a man um, who was not allowing her to move forward. She said that when the reverend reached for her, the man yelled, Who are you? What are you doing here? The girl, the spirit girl, began screaming through Amy. As soon as the reverend burned incense to Buddha, the spirits left her. Afterwards, the reverend asked if she had been near the earthquake or the tsunami or knew anyone that, who had died in it, but Amy had not. In fact, she had had experiences with ghosts before the tsunami. The reverend said to Amy that she could come anytime, and Amy did. She would come around 7 o'clock, and the exorcism would last until 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning. So this is a long process. She said that after the first possession, even more spirits began to come and enter her. One was a little girl who had been running from the wave with her little brother. She was running and holding his hand. The little brother said, I can't go on anymore. I can't run anymore. But the girl kept running and and held onto his hand tightly. Um, Amy said that she was experiencing it as if she was actually there. She said that she can, she remembers the smell of the salty sea air. She remembers the, the sweat and the, of the boy's hand. The little girl eventually did let go of her little brother's hand by accident. And that little girl had seen her brother be washed away. And then she herself was washed away. The little girl through Amy yelled, mom, mom, mom. Amy felt helpless. She was, she felt like she was in having an out of body experience. Um, she wanted someone to help this little spirit girl. The little girl, um, it, it seemed like she wanted forgiveness from her mother for letting go of her brother's hands. She felt like she had not lived up to her responsibility and not taking care of her. And she was just feeling a lot of guilt for that. Um, The reverend's wife um, chose to step in as a proxy for the little girl's mother, and she was able to guide the little spirit girl towards the light. Um, Something that's really cool, um, because I did not know this, is that I did not know that Buddhist reverends could be married. So this was something really interesting that I learned this episode. Did you guys know that? Am I like totally behind? Maybe I need to read a little bit more about it. It's really a fascinating religion. Amy asked the reverend if she was mentally ill. The reverend said, I don't believe so. He thinks that she's just more spiritually in tune, and that's why she can see spirits. He says some can hear and see more than others. And when big disasters happen, people's ranges of emotion and spirituality and like what they can see and what they can feel expand. And that enables them to see things that they're not supposed to see and hear things that they're not supposed to hear. He said that when a trauma like this happens, people tend to 
feel rather than think. And he says that in everyday life, um, we often sacrifice our need to feel um, without even realizing it. These stories are sacred to the priest and his wife. They actually don't speak about them all too often, only when people ask them about it. What the priest did for Amy is not traditional in the Buddhist traditions. And I'm glad that they mentioned that because I don't know an awful lot about Buddhism. Um, And I was kind of like shocked that this had happened. I thought that that was mainly like a Judeo-Christian thing. Um, But apparently many people who follow or practice or like, or hold a Buddhist calling do not approve of what this specific reverend is doing. But he says that he cannot see a person suffering and stand there and do nothing. He doesn't believe that um, his gods would be upset with him for using his talents and gifts to help people who are suffering. The reverend and his wife have a cafe, and I think it's really cool, and this offers people a place to go. They, uh, they try to provide a warm place for people to gather and advocate for more joy together. They play music, they play games, they have dinner together, um, they laugh together. Many survivors ask, why did I survive? Why couldn't I save them? Many of them are scared of the ghost sightings, and so they ask the reverend what they should do. Uh, The reverend struggles to answer, but tells them, ghosts aren't scary. They worry for you and long for you just as you worry and long for them. Do not be scared of them. If you see a ghost, simply say, you are dead. There's a world for you to go to. We are still living and we will stay here in our cities and try to fix them. Do not worry for us. In March, 2019, a beautiful lantern ceremony was held to honor those who lost their lives. I was wondering what the call to action would be throughout this entire episode, but we're actually not given one. This episode was made specifically to honor the victims of the earthquake and the tsunami and to honor those who did survive, but who lost their friends, homes, and families. While I understand that many people might be disappointed in this episode or confused why it was made into an unsolved mystery episode, because it doesn't really seem to have a huge mystery in the definition of the word that we're used to, I do incredibly appreciate this episode. I learned so many things about the Japanese culture. I learned so many things about the Buddhist religion and the way that they cope with death. There are actually many similarities between the Buddhist religion and the religion that I personally practice that I did not know of before watching this episode. So that was really fascinating to me. I think that like the more that we learn about different cultures and different religions, we learn that we're actually not very different at all and that we all like, you can find common ground with that within anything. And I think that's really cool, but you have to research it and learn about it if you're going to find out if you have common ground with somebody. Um, one thing I appreciated about the episode a lot was that it was when um, Dr. Janabishi was talking about how he spoke of Japanese people not wanting to forget their loved ones. So that's why they don't seek out mental health professionals, but that he believed that this was a way for the community to come together to face their collective PTSD. 
And I just really liked the idea of coping with mental health issues as a community. That's much different than it can feel here in the state sometimes. Oftentimes, if you are a sufferer of a mental illness or you know somebody that suffers from a mental illness, you can feel very much alone or feel like you're the only person in the world that feels this way. Um, And that's really isolating and sad. So the idea of facing it together as a community just struck me as incredibly beautiful. I don't know why it touched me so much, but it just did for some reason. Um, And I just thought it was really cool. So what are your thoughts about this episode? I would love to hear what your thoughts are. So be sure to visit us on Instagram at mystery still unsolved. Um, Next time we will be discussing the next episode in volume two of unsolved mysteries. So if you like to watch them beforehand, you can go ahead and do that, but you don't need um, to do it. So I don't want to give you any stress or any homework in your life. We're going to go through it step by step. So you don't have to watch it. But if you're like a visual person like me and you want to watch it ahead of time, that's what we're going to be doing. Volume two, episode five. Um, so same time, same place. I'll be here and join us next week. And together we'll discover, did someone ever place a useful tip? Has justice prevailed or is the mystery still unsolved?